Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. I am the Good Shepherd. As I say those words, for some of you in the room this morning, an image or picture probably popped into your head. Maybe it was similar to the video that you just saw on the screen. But why is that? The reason why is the story that we're about to talk about, this analogy, this scene, is one of the most famous analogies that we hear about. Especially if you've grown up in church for a long time, or maybe you're familiar with the language that we use in church, this would have struck a chord with you in some way. For me, when I was thinking about this story this week, when I was thinking about the statement, I am the good shepherd, the first thing that popped into my head was a movie. Some of you might know it. It's called The Good Shepherd. One reason I, a movie popped into my head was that, that I love movies. And one thing I think that fueled this as I was growing up was my family and I had this tradition that every Christmas day we would go to a movie on Christmas Day because, you know, all the good Oscar-nominated movies come around out around that time, right? And so my family and I, after Christmas dinner, we would, uh, my cousins, my wife, my sister, or sorry, she was my girlfriend at the time, <laughs> but we would all load up into the car and roll out to go watch this movie. And I remember this movie really clearly because, yes, my girlfriend, who later became my wife, was back from school abroad. Uh, my cousins were coming with us. My sister came with us. And I was so pumped to go watch this movie, The Good Shepherd. I heard, I, I saw a trailer that it was a spy thriller, that it was all about how the CIA came to be. So I had to convince mainly this female crew of girls to go watch this movie with me. And I said, don't worry, it's going to be good. Thank God they didn't hold me to those words, because the reason that you probably don't know this movie is that it was just super terrible. It was horrible. It was one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Uh, and I, I was sitting in the theater, and I remember this going through my head. I'm like, this is the last time they're ever going to let me pick a movie. And why I remember this so clearly and vividly in my head was my cousin, who's this 5'2 South Asian girl, same age as me. Uh, Halfway through the movie, there was these two guys that were so bored, these big dudes. They were sitting in the back row, and they were just talking on their cell phone, like, really loud. They just did not care. And my cousin, sitting next to me, she had it. She just got up, and I remember this. She yelled something like, I know this movie sucks, but some of us are actually trying to figure out what's going on. <laughs> See, this confusion that we felt that day leaving the theater... You know, we thought, like, depending on the title and the trailer and everything, like, we, we were expecting something. But we left with our expectations unmet. We left with confusion. When Jesus steps on the scene here in John 10, and he starts saying all these I am statements, people were confused. People weren't sure what he was saying. If you have a Bible, uh, we're going to turn to John 10, and we're going to be in John 10, 6 to about verse 17. And as you're flipping there, as Pastor Dave said, my name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, welcome if you're new or visiting. Special welcome to you if you're a skeptic or exploring Christianity with us. 
Um, I love that you're here. You're, you came in at a great moment. We're in the middle of this series, as I said, uh, the summer series about the I am statements of Jesus. And Pastor John, who usually is up here teaching, I love what he said last week when, he, when it comes to this series. He said this, if you're a seeker, skeptic, cultural Christian, or from another faith, by the end of the summer, you will know the fullness of what Jesus claimed about himself. And you will be able to say yes or no in a very informed way. I hope what I have to say this morning adds to that. I hope that for some of you that have, are, uh, are exploring Christianity that your knowledge and understanding of who Jesus is is building. And just, this just adds to it. But before I read from John 10, 6, I had this sense this morning as I was praying that I, I wanted to start my talk by just confessing to you as a community, a community that holds me as a member of this community accountable. And I'm just going to kneel down in a moment and pray in an act of surrender. Because this morning, I really hope that you just didn't come in here to hear another talk, but to experience God for yourself. And I know one of the one things that could stop or be an obstacle, if you will, of that happening is my ego, is my flesh. The one thing that I want more than anything else, if I'm being honest, is that you guys walk away here thinking that I'm a good preacher. So I confess that to you so that it loses its power in this moment. So will you join me as I surrender and just ask and welcome God to come and move amongst us? this morning. Holy Spirit, we ask that you come. We thank you that you're here. Father, I pray that you would give me the words, that the words that come out of my mouth are pleasing to you as an act of worship to you, that I paint a picture of who you are in such a beautiful and grand way that everybody in this room will experience you in such a deep level, they can't but leave with their lives totally transformed, with their hope renewed. So God, I pray that the words that come out of my mouth are coupled with your power for your glory and honor and praise. Amen. John 10, 6 reads, Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. They didn't understand, and I think it's safe to say they were confused. They were just as confused as my family and I walking out of that theater that day. They were confused, but sure, it was a figure of speech, but you have to ask, why were they confused? Remember, the Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day, and this language, the shepherd image, would have been familiar to them. Just like I mentioned, the good shepherd, and, uh, and when things popped into your head, things must have been popping into their heads. Because we need to realize that the shepherd was a prevalent symbol to this Bedouin people, to the people of Israel. When we talk about sheeps, sheepfolds, sheep gates, like things would have been popping into their head, not only because shepherding was the main occupation of the day, but because it was so embedded in a lot of the stories that they told. So my question is, why were they so puzzled? 
Jesus ignores their lack of understanding, and he, he continues in verse 7 to 10 by revealing that he is the good shepherd, but also that he is the gate, which Pastor John touched on last week. But we're going to move to verse 11 to tackle our I am statement today. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. If they were confused in verse 6, by now they were probably really confused, right? Reading this, you're asking yourself, and I'm sure they're asking themselves, who's the wolves? Who are the sheep? Who are the, shep- the bad shepherds? But Jesus just ignores us and keeps going in verse 14, and he says this, I am the good shepherd again. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. He goes on, I have... The- other sheep that are not of the sheep pen, I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. The command I received, this command I received from my father. I am the good shepherd. What is Jesus saying? Well, first, let's try to make sense of the Pharisees' confusion. And in order to do that, we need to understand their worldview. So a side note about how worldviews work, okay? N.T. Wright, a pastor and theologian, breaking down how worldviews work, he says this, If you have been, bo- been born and bred within a culture that tells certain stories, observes certain customs and festivals, practices particular domestic habits, and sings particular songs, and if these things all together reinforce one another, a single phrase or action may well carry multiple layers of meaning. A single phrase or action may carry multiple layers of meaning. The world that Jesus enters into here, the time and place, first century Jewish culture, this phrase and statement, I am the good shepherd, would not sound foreign to them. It actually would sound very, very normal, as I said. To these religious leaders, it would evoke feelings of familiarity, not only because shepherding was one of the main occupations, as I said, but because the religious leaders of the day, like these were the people that handled these ancient texts, these ancient scriptures. They, their job, like my job today, was to take these scriptures, interpret them, and apply them to the community. So when Jesus said this, they knew what we know as the Old Testament. They knew all these multiple passages where this sheep imagery is used. One probably that came to mind in their minds was Ezekiel 34. And we're going to jump there. You can turn there with your Bible. I'm going to read it out loud. But you need to understand, they lived with this rich worldview. Before I get to Ezekiel 34. They understood that the story of Israel was going somewhere. That God initiated it. And it began in this first half of the Bible, as we know as the Old Testament. But it's going somewhere. And that they, as a Jewish community, they're living in the midst of it. And this is what they were expecting to happen any day now in their day and time. That God was going to show up. That he was going to rescue them from the Roman oppression. That he was going to do something to set them free so that they can go and once again worship him. The story 
is so familiar to them because it's part of their history, right? Just switch out the Romans for the Egyptians, and you have the same situation happening. The narrative played out itself in rich ways in their history, and, and most recently, not only Moses, but most recently in this guy named Judas Maccabeus. And if you look over to verse 22, you see this feast, this feast of dedications that's mentioned. This is a festival that they celebrated. And to me and you, we commonly know this as Hanukkah. And what they were about to separate, what, uh, what celebrate, what they were preparing to celebrate was this great liberation from the Syrian oppression where the Syrians came in around 160, 65 BC or something like that. And they came and oppressed the Jewish people. And not only that, they did this one major act. They desecrated the temple of God. They put in all these pagan gods, and they totally desecrated the whole temple. And this guy, Judas Maccabeus, with his family, they raised a revolt. They came in. They renewed and rededicated the temple. And this is what Hanukkah is all about. So the Pharisees knew this story. This is the worldview that they're working with. And so when it comes to this passage and this good shepherd and this imagery, all of this, Ezekiel 34 would have been familiar to their minds. And this is what it says in Ezekiel 34, the prophet speaking, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you shepherds of Israel who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched or looked for them. We're going to skip over to verse 23, but if you want my Cole's notes on what happens between verse 6 and verse 23, pretty much God says that you guys are doing a horrible job, so I'm going to step in. Now verse 23 reads, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I'm the Lord. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. There's that shepherd imagery again. The Pharisees that Jesus is speaking to in John 10 would have noticed the similarities. They would have known them at a deep level. Can you imagine, like these Pharisees, as this is going through their head, as Jesus is speaking, they're probably thinking to themselves, are we the bad shepherds? Like shepherds in that culture were known to lead, and they're the religious leaders, right? So they must be thinking, are we the bad shepherds? Some of them are like, nah, not, no, not me, no way. Maybe Bill over there, because he's been sipping on that wineskin like all day. But me, no way. I'm not a bad shepherd. Jesus can't be talking about me. You know, with this Ezekiel 34 passage going on in their head, they must be thinking like, is Jesus this true shepherd that Ezekiel is talking about? Is that who he's claiming to be? I thought it was David. Could it be Jesus? See, their confusion comes from their expectation of how they thought the story would unfold. A storyline more like there's this wicked tyrant oppressing God's people, a.k.a. Rome in this case. 
Up comes this noble and heroic leader coming in power, rising up a revolution, rising up an army, risking it all, fighting this key battle, cleansing the temple, setting Israel free to follow God and his law once more. But this is definitely not what Jesus is doing. If you read the stories before, sure, maybe in chapter 3 he cleanses the temple, but he's cleansing the temple uh, 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 from a thing that the Pharisees allowed to happen. And that was this marketplace that in some ways was desecrating the temple of God, which he says was always meant to be a house of prayer. So to them, they're like, wait, no, Jesus is coming and speaking against us. What is he doing? And they look at Jesus, and he's not this noble, heroic leader that they're looking for. He's not the leader that they know is going to raise a national rebellion against Rome. What they didn't realize, though, because what? Jesus wasn't fitting into their human understanding, their worldview, their idea of what he came to do. What they missed because of that was this, that Jesus not only was from the line of David, but God incarnate as he claimed, bringing the prophecy of Ezekiel to fulfillment in a way that nobody could imagine. Isn't that the way of God? His ways are higher than ours. Yes, they were spiritually blind, as Jesus pointed out in a chapter before, but the sad and simple factor is that they didn't accept Jesus as the good shepherd because he didn't meet their expectations. He didn't fit their idea of who they thought he should be and what they thought he should do. They always thought God would underwrite their national expectations, not overthrow it. And this is what I was wrestling with all week. See, when we read about these characters in the Bible, when we read about the Pharisees, we need to realize, like you and I, they are normal people. They're humans. They're normal people like you and I. And if you start thinking about it, and you start thinking about why the Pharisees who are humans rejected Jesus as their good shepherd because he didn't meet their expectations, fit into their worldview, fit nicely alongside their ideologies, we as human beings living in our progressive modern day culture reject Jesus in the same way for similar reasons. Because he doesn't fit nicely alongside our existing Western worldview. In fact, the implications of Jesus being our good shepherd, as I said earlier, that he leads you, that he's God, that you have to submit to him, go right against it. They go right against our Western worldviews. So take one for example, okay? The Western worldview that's built around freedom. To simplify it, it goes like this. I am the captain of my own ship. I'm the captain of my own ship. No one can tell me what to do because I need to be free to do what I want. Just think about that for a second. I, I'm just going to let it sink in. See, if you live here in Western culture long enough, you'll be saturated with this idea that our freedom is one of the highest values of our society that shapes our worldview. As a culture, we believe freedom is the highest good, that becoming free is the only heroic story we have left. One author by the name of Alan Ehrenholt writes about this. He's an American journalist, and he's talking about our friends down south in the States, but I think it can apply for all of North America. He writes this, most of us in America 
I believe a few simple propositions that seem so clear and self-evident they scarcely need to be said. Choice is a good thing in life. And the more of it we have, the happier we are. Authority is inherently suspect. Nobody should have the right to tell others what to think or how to behave. Did you catch that? Like when he says self-evident, he means that we know these things intuitively. And the sad thing is, this type of thinking is not just in the world out there, but can be found in the community in here. See, so many Christians that I know that I've talked to that are, ha- that are my friends have taken these ideologies that we find in the culture and have just worked their way and integrated their, it, their, it into how they follow Jesus. It's worked their way into the relationship with Jesus. And here's the problem. They don't understand how this cultural framework that they're living in goes and contrasts the biblical truths that we find in our Bible. We just embrace these ideas. Remember how worldviews are made, right? I mentioned it earlier. Stories, symbols, festivals, songs, poems, domestic habits. Just take a survey of our culture. From the latest Taylor Swift song, You Need to Calm Down, to the news, to if you walk into uh, chapters right here in Ajax, you walk into it, you probably find this book on the bestseller shelf. It's called The Alchemist. I first heard about this book when my uh, 25-year-old barber back in Vancouver, BC told me about it. He got into reading and he knew I liked books. And so he's like, Ben, you have to read this book. It's going to change your life. And sure enough, I looked into it. I found out that it was an international bestseller. Some of you might know it. It's originally, it was written in Portuguese. And here's the story in the book. It's about this young shepherd boy who goes on this journey, this quest for treasure. And here's the central theme throughout. It's all about pursuing your dreams. It's all about following the desires of your heart. This way of thinking is the air we breathe. So much so that it works its way into us at a young age. So me and my wife, we have four kids, two boys and two girls. And one day, she was telling me this story the other day. She was driving with all four of them in the car. And our two boys were having a conversation in the background. And she wasn't paying attention until this one moment when our oldest son, Shavi, she said, turned to our son, Mason, and was kind of giving him advice. She'll never forget what, she, what, what he said. He said, well, Mason, all that matters is that you're true to yourself. Having no context, my wife right away jumped in and was like, no, that's not true. The Bible says your heart is deceptive above all things. And, you know, it just probably just confused the boys right then and there. (laughs) But that's not how we roll in our family. And she was trying to make that clear. And as we talked about, like, okay, so how how do these guys get this idea? These little kids. Because that's not what how we talk or how we speak in our house. And this was the funny thing. We realized that the, the, where my oldest son learned this was from this wacky, crazy cartoon on Netflix. Jesus can never fit into this type of thinking, this worldview. Why? Because in order to embrace him fully as the good shepherd, I said it before, you need to allow him to lead. You need to submit to him as God, his will. 
And I know this from personal experience, right? I embraced this ideology of freedom in my late teens and my early university years. And I grew up in a Christian family, but I, I totally went the opposite direction. I rebelled against my faith. I was like, I want to do whatever I want to do, and I want to live life this way. Because I believed in that moment that it would truly bring me the greatest satisfaction. So for two years, you know, I just did my thing. I partied. I got drunk. I did drugs. I did every, I experienced everything that I couldn't experience in a Christian household. I just rebelled. And after two years of living like that, this is where I ended up. My girlfriend dumped me. Don't worry, she's married to me now, but my girlfriend dumped me. <laughs> I lost my job. I almost got kicked out of university because I was on an academic probation. And so instead of them kicking me out, I dropped out. But really, pursuing this type of lifestyle, all I found was I found myself empty, scared, and just questioning, like, what am I here to do? What's the meaning of life? What am I called to do? I was confused. And I wish I knew then what I know now. And that's this. This idea of modern freedom, the freedom of self-assertion, meaning I'm free if I may do whatever I want, defining it as the absence of constraints on choices, it doesn't work. It's unworkable. You can't live this out. It's, it's an impossibility. What do I mean by that? Let me explain. So take my university years, for example. Because I wanted the freedom that a good income brings, right? I went to university. I went to university so that I could get a good education, uh, to get a good job, to experience the freedom that a good income brings. But what I didn't realize is that I would have to sacrifice other freedoms in order to make this freedom happen. Other freedoms such as time, other freedoms such as money to get the best education, like, I also, along the way, have to sacrifice other desires, like desires to hang out with my friends instead of studying, desires to go out and party. Because when you're in school, you can't live your life any way you want. Why? Because that lifestyle goes right against living a lifestyle that allows you to academically succeed and get the degree in the end, doesn't it? So it leaves us with this question. How does the idea of freedom work when your wants are in conflict? When you have two freedoms that are in contrast to each other? Like, how does it work? The simple answer is, it doesn't. A pastor in New York, a former pastor by the name of Tim Keller, says this. We see then that freedom is not what culture tells us. Real freedom comes from a strategic loss of some freedoms in order to gain others. It's not the absent, absence of constraints, but it's choosing the right constraints and the right freedoms to lose. Another example, think about freedoms when it, come, freedom when it comes to community and loving relationships, be it romantic or a relationship with a best friend or family relationships. Like one thing that you can't deny, like if you're a non-Christian or a Christian in the room, and you can't deny this, we're social creatures. We need relationships. We need relationships to thrive. Hence why the loneliness epidemic is such a problem and that you have so many articles and people trying to figure out what to do about it. Why? Because happiness research strongly confirms that the, there's this importance to strong social relationships. Findings show that it, it strengthens the immune system. 
It extends life. It speeds recovery from surgery. It reduces the risk of depression and anxiety disorder. We need to interact with others. We need to belong. So here's where it comes in conflict with this value of absolute freedom. John Haidt, in this book, The Happiness Hypothesis, he puts it like this. An ideology of extreme personal freedom can be dangerous because it encourages people to leave homes, jobs, cities, and marriages in search of personal and professional fulfillment, thereby breaking the relationships that were probably their best hope for such fulfillment. The moment you get into a loving relationship is the moment your independence, freedom, and autonomy get hit right? We all know this. If you're in a loving relationship, all the married couples in the room should be saying amen right about now. Your autonomy gets hit. You have to get rid or limit certain freedoms in order to serve the other well in order to be in a truly loving relationship. So here's the dilemma. Aren't loving relationships the environment that you feel the most free? A loving relationship when the other person knows the ins and outs about you, your hang-ups, your weaknesses, everything about you and still loves you. There's no greater feeling or sense of liberation than when you feel loved well. That's why our culture is so obsessed with also pursuing love. But you will never know the freedom of love unless you give yourself to the other person to be fully known. Therefore, adding constraints to your freedom, as I said. Losing your autonomy. Jesus, the great I am. And I am is not a throwaway statement. It's not a grammatical error. Like what he is referring to, that he's referring to his name that he gave as God to Moses, the ancestor of this Jewish community back then in Exodus. And this was his name, that he is I am. Jesus is referring to himself as God. So God, who created us, who designed us, knowing how life works and knowing the best way for us to live our lives, comes on the scene in the form of Jesus and says this. See, this is where the beauty of what Jesus is saying in verse 14 comes to light. He says in verse 14, I'm the good shepherd, and then throws this other line in there. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. See, the key to understanding what he's saying comes from understanding this word know. Know, in its original sense, in its original language, is not to be understood as a head knowledge. It's not to be understood as like this intellectual ascent, understanding Jesus in the description of him. No, Jesus, when he says know, and he's talking about knowing his sheep and his sheep know him, he's talking about this deep intimacy, this deep intimacy that's only to be had in a relationship. A genuine knowing. A genuine knowing like you know your spouse or your best friend. That's what he's talking about right here. And this knowing only takes form in relationship with him. And it starts from a personal experience of perfect love. Well, how do you experience that is then the question. And some of you this morning, you know, if I asked you, what do you know about God? Give me a description. You could probably run off just different facts of things you read about God. But if I switch the question around and I asked you this, of how much you know and how much you told me, how much of that have you actually personally experienced? 
a lot of you would probably be quiet. And I don't say that to put guilt on you. I don't say that to shame you. I say that to open your eyes and to make sure that you're listening in when it comes to how you personally experience Jesus. Because this experience is the only experience that will allow you to believe in a way where the world comes against you that you would hold on to your beliefs when you experience it for yourself. And this is how you experience it. He goes on and he says this, I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. See, this is how this intimate relationship started. This intimate relationship that he's talking about. He knows the Father and the Father knows him. We know it as the Trinity. What he's talking about is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These three distinct persons, but one God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, live in this community of mutual submission, of self-giving, the perfect expression of love. This is where love originates in its purest form. Summed up in this statement, God is love. Perfect love, by its very nature, always moves out, always reaches out. That is the story of creation at the very beginning. You need to understand like this. It's love moving out of the Trinity to form the human race, to form the world and everything in it. We were always created to experience this love that the Trinity has. But we know how the story goes, right? We know that the story, the relationship, everything is broken back in the garden in Genesis, the first humans were deceived by the enemy of this world to reach out and eat the forbidden fruit. And they reached out to gain this forbidden fruit, to eat of it, because they thought it was going to lead to their freedom, but instead it led to their bondage. It led to fear. It led to sin entering the world and the consequence of sin, death. And this is what we miss. And I think this is what the Pharisees miss. Other than the greatest bondage, the greatest thing that's oppressing us for them was not the Roman Empire. And for, not, for us, it's not being able to live our lives or not being able to live our lives the way we want. It's sin. It's missing the mark. Sin stops us from entering into a relationship with God, giving ourselves to him in a way that allows us to be intimately known, experiencing perfect love and the ultimate liberation, the ultimate freedom that comes with that, knowing Jesus the good shepherd, knowing Jesus, the good shepherd. See, knowing that as a human race, that we can never work our way to achieve this intimate relationship for ourselves, our good shepherd, Jesus, he steps into the world to restore this relationship. The crux of, the crux of understanding Jesus as the good shepherd comes in these lines that he says after he mentions the good shepherd in verse 11 and verse 14. It's this line, I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep. This is what makes Jesus the good shepherd, makes him better than any other shepherds out there. He lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus, the true shepherd, knowing like sheep, we're helpless, we can't make this intimate relationship a possibility. He says, I'm going to come and I'm going to repair this relationship between you and God for you. Because, because of sin. And that's what atonement means. Atoning means is repairing the relationship. 
And so he comes into this world, and he says, I'm going to, once again, break your framework of what you think is going to happen. Because if you think about this Jewish culture, what they are known to do is take the sheep and sacrifice them to atone for their sins. But Jesus, the good shepherd, says, no, I've come as the shepherd to become the lamb to once and for all free this world from sin, to sacrifice myself. He gives up his life for us that we may give our lives to him. And as the true shepherd, he leads the way by example. I love how one scholar puts it. The freedom Jesus wins for his people will be achieved not by sword and shield, but by the cross. And not only death on the cross, but his resurrection, which Pastor Angela is going to talk about next week. But in the resurrection, he stomps sin and death out. And this is how we know God loves us. John puts it in 1 John 3, 16. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us. Isn't that the ultimate expression of love? Self-sacrifice. And as a culture, we know this. We know this. It's in the stories that we tell. Just think about some of the famous movies that are out right now, right? A lot of them end with what? The hero dying to save the world. Like how many of you were just bawling at the end of Avengers Endgame, Right? just bawling your eyes out. I wasn't, but as soon as I looked at my son, who was about eight years old, he was just ugly crying, like snot, tears, like everything. And my wife was sitting next to me, and she was kind of crying too. And I was fine, and then I looked over, and then you know that ball in your throat, that lump in your throat comes up, and I was like just trying to hold it back. But, but why is that, right? Why do we react to a movie like that when self-sacrifice is portrayed? Because deep down we know that this is the ultimate expression of perfect love. Love with no strings attached. Right? This, this entrance into this relationship is only done by grace, by receiving it as a gift of grace. You can't earn it. And this is what I love about Christianity. It, it differentiates itself out of all the religions out there. All the other religions are about you working your way up to God. Christianity comes in on the scene and says, no, 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 no. It's not about you working your way up to God. It's about God working his way and pursuing you with his love and working his way down to you to make a way for you to enter into a relationship with him. That's the beauty of the gospel. And I love what Jesus says in verse 17. I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. Remember, he's God. No one takes it from him. He lays it down willingly. He lays it down willingly. Just let that hit you. He lays it down willingly so that you can experience perfect love, that you can experience total liberation, that you can experience the only freedom to be known on this side of heaven. But here's the first step. Jesus doesn't force you into this relationship. He woos you with his love. And the first step is repentance. Choosing to surrender to the good shepherd. Choosing to surrender to him starts with repentance. And repentance in the Greek, if you know, is this word metanoia, which means changing your mind. See, we need to take our worldviews, we need to take our cultural frameworks and totally destroy them. We need to change our minds and build them from the ground up as we allow Jesus to lead us. 
And this is what I love about this shepherd sheep imagery, right? It coincides with this master disciple, this master student imagery that Jesus uses later on, right? We follow Jesus, and as he leads us and we follow him, we learn from him. We change our minds. You need to change your mind about yourself. I'm not fundamentally a good person deep down. I'm not the center of the universe. I'm not the king of the world or even my life. You need to change your mind about sin. I'm responsible for my actions. My past hurts do not excuse my present failings. My offenses against God and against others are not trivial. I do not live or think or feel as I should. And listen, this changing of the mind also leads to a changing of behavior. But you have to understand that your behavior has changed not to acquire approval from God, but to live in a relationship with God. Because the way that he designed you is to live a life without sin so that you can live in this intimate relationship with him. And it's like what I said earlier. It's giving away some freedoms, the freedoms that we talked about do not work to experience the ultimate freedom of relationship with him. But you always enter with grace, and grace sustains you in the relationship. See, what I love about this relationship with God, he knows you so intimately. He knows you by name, you being his sheep. He knows what you're going through. He knows your sins, past, present, and future, and still he pursues you with his love. So here's my prayer for some of you this morning. Some of you who are searching, who are seeking, who, in the words of Pastor John, are cultural Christians, have you actually taken on Jesus and fully embraced him as the shepherd of your life? Is he leading you? If not, this is my prayer for you this morning. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Ask for mercy that the good shepherd Jesus will lead you into experience of divine love. For some of you this morning, you think you've been following Jesus as your good shepherd, but really, you've been treating him more like a personal assistant. You make, deci make decisions, and then later on, you check in with Jesus to see if it's okay. Or you make decisions big life decisions, and then you call on Jesus to ask to bless them. Instead of first and foremost going to God in prayer and being God, Jesus, my good shepherd, where are you leading me? And I say that because I've understood that, the outworking of this in my life, allowing Jesus to lead me as the good shepherd. It changes the way that you live. Not only does it move you into a relationship of intimacy and love, it also leads you to experience this life the way that it's meant to be lived, in contentment, in contentment in that relationship, a satisfaction that nothing in this world can bring to you. See, if, if you understand verse 10, when Jesus says he comes so that you can have abundant life, right before he goes into this whole discourse of being the good shepherd, you understand abundant life is life found in relationship with him. And think about this, right? When the only way, the only, where, the only uh, place 
when, and when it coming to eternal, when it talks about eternal life, like think about abundant life and eternal life like this, when it talks about and give a, a, gives a description in the Bible of eternal life, it's only found in John 17, 3. And it says this, eternal life is this, to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Think about that for a second. Eternal life is to know God. It's to be in relationship with God, to allow him to lead you. That's the abundant life. That's eternal life. And the sad thing is, if you do not want to live your life like that, you're rejecting eternal life. And a lot of us know what the opposite of eternal life is. A life without God. A life out of relationship with God. Also known as hell. That's the decision you have to make this morning. That's the decision you have to wrestle with. But this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to end off our time just by pausing. Just by allowing God to do what he wants to do in this room. Because some of you haven't experienced God's perfect love. And that only happens, as Paul puts it in Romans, by the Holy Spirit pouring his love into your heart. Some of you have knowledge of this love, but you don't have a personal experience. And this is what I love about Christianity. It's both objective, meaning you can know things about God, and it's subjective, it's experiential. So this is what I want to do. For the next couple minutes, I'm going to open us up in prayer, and we're just going to be silent. We're going to allow God, who's sovereign, to move, to come, to rest on some of you, maybe, that you experience him in a substantial way. But I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> this is the fun part of the service. But my prayer is that you enter into this moment with a posture of surrender. Some of you might need to, do, to put your hands out as an outward expression of something that's happening internally. But this is how I want to guide you. I don't need help during this moment of silence. Please do not, if you have certain spiritual gifts in the room, shout out, yell. We're just going to be silent. But I want to keep us all together. And I want to set the expectations because I know a lot of us come from different Christian cultures, if you will. Some of you more a conservative culture like myself. Some of you maybe more charismatic or Pentecostal, which is great. We love that you're here. We love that we're one body worshiping together. But this is the expectation. A lot of times in these moments in the room, I know how most people feel especially if you're not experiencing something. You're like, is there something wrong with my Christianity? Is there something wrong with my relationship with Jesus? And to that, I say no. We all experience Jesus and the Holy Spirit differently. Some of us who are more in tune to our emotions might experience an emotional moment with him. And that's fine. That's great. Some of us who are more in tune with our bodies might experience him in a physical way. Some of us who are more cerebral might uh, experience them in an intellectual way. Maybe a, a verse might come to mind. 
But I say this so that you don't get hang, hung up on the experience. We're not pursuing experience here. We're just opening ourselves up to what God wants to do in the room. So with that, let me pray, and we're just going to wait. Holy Spirit, we thank you that your presence is here. We just want more of you, God. Come and make your palpable presence known. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.